Hello and welcome back to another True Crime Tuesday episode here on Spill the Tea with B&T. I'm your host, Brooke. And I'm your host, Tori. Today's episode, we talk about the tragic murder of Derek Roby. We want to say a disclaimer that... Mm, we want to say a disclaimer that this episode does contain graphic content such as sexual assault and murder of a child. If this disturbs you, please click off. Boom, boom. So Derek Joseph Roby was born on October 2nd, 1988 to Dave and Doreen Roby. They lived in a small town called Savona in New York City that had a population of just 970 people. Derek's mom and dad said that they were all incredibly close and he was described as a quote-unquote boy's boy. He loved playing sports and playing in the dirt. Sometimes even at his baseball games before he'd go up to bout, he would shout, This one's for you, Mom. So on the day of the murder, August 2nd, 1993, Derek was just four years old. His mother, Doreen, was tending to his brother, Dalton, who was only 18 months old at the time. She couldn't get Dalton under control, but she needed to take Derek to summer camp. She usually waited for him out front and watched Derek walk down the block to the house where the camp is held. Derek told his mom, don't worry about it, it's okay, and to just worry about Dalton, while he just walked down the street. Doreen wasn't sure, but it was only a block away, and it was a dead-end street, so it was a pretty straightforward path to get there, and he didn't have to cross any roads or any streets or do anything, so she figured it was safe enough. She reluctantly agreed, and this was the first time she'd ever let him go anywhere alone. Sadly, within only five minutes of leaving his house, Derek was dead. And when Tori and I were first talking about this case, she was like, yeah, she let a four-year-old walk by himself. And I get it was, you know, down the street, no, like, turns or anything. It was just a straight shot, dead-end road. But at the same time, like, call me overbearing, but my nephew was four, and I don't let him walk on the front lawn by himself. And I live in a, I mean, I live in a cul-de-sac, like, no cars. We live in a neighborhood full of kids, so everyone's kind of on the lookout. But, you know, it was definitely something to me that I kind of looked at and I was like okay you know to each their own no and I definitely agree I mean it was 1993 so yes things were a lot different and I know I've watched some of Doreen's interviews and she is just heartbroken and I think that you know any mother would be I don't think that at four years old I would let you know I have a five-year-old right now and I don't think I would let him go anywhere alone but I, I mean we can't really we can't really understand Doreen and what was going on at the time and and I mean it's really hard and I think a lot of people really take away from what happened in this case by just blaming it all on Doreen being like well if Doreen hadn't done this or Doreen hadn't done that if she wouldn't have done this and I mean yes we can all say that was maybe a little irresponsible but I don't want this to take away from any part of this case I I do know that that's a lot of people's comments and thoughts is not really what happened but the fact that he was alone so Yes, we can all acknowledge that that was probably not the best idea, but don't let it take away from the actual points in this case. So Doreen went to pick up her son at camp later that day, but was shocked to find out he had never even gotten there. In a panic, she called the police, who acted quickly to start the search for Derek. It didn't take long before his body was sadly discovered in some brush right off the path where he would have taken to camp. He was beaten and sodomized and the banana from his lunch was smashed into the ground next to him, and his Kool-Aid was poured into his wounds, which I have, like, literal chills right now. I'm just talking about that. Um, the first thought was, who could have done something so brutal to such a young child? Police looked into sex offenders in the area and other suspects, but nothing was found. The small town was shocked and in fear of what kind of predator was out there. 
So Derek was buried five days later in his baseball uniform. And that just makes me so sad. Like referring to the part where his mom described, he would shout, this one's for you, mom. I I couldn't even imagine having to bury your five-year-old son in such a brutal way too. The way he was taken was just horrific. Thankfully, the people in the community were incredibly helpful. They even paid for Derek's funeral and held a bunch of fundraisers for the family. One boy was particularly helpful, and his name was Eric Smith. So Eric went to the police department to speak to them about what he knew from the morning Derek died. He actually attended the same camp as Derek, and he was kicked out the same morning around the same time Derek was walking to camp. So as he was riding his bike home, he said he saw him walking by a park, um, the park that you pass to get to the house where the camp is held. He described Derek in great detail, telling him about the white t-shirt he was wearing and how he had a really cool lunchbox, and so they knew that he had definitely seen Derek that day. This was the first lead in the murder investigation, so police kept pushing Eric for everything he knew so that they could possibly find the killer. Eric at first loved the attention, but when they kept drilling him, he became angry. He even shouted at the investigators, which was later quoted that he said, you think I killed him, don't you? They later decided to do a reenactment with Eric to get a good idea of where Derek was last seen. While doing the reenactment, the police were confused on how he could have seen all that he said he did from the distance he claimed to be. Police were growing suspicious that maybe Eric knew more than what he was telling police. Now they had more questions. Did someone threaten him? Did he see something that he was too afraid to tell? So now with all these questions, police looked into Eric's background, and this is where they discovered he was living a difficult life. Eric was a redheaded boy with freckles, and children would tease him constantly and terribly, and he would come home crying almost daily. He had no friends. Kids would dump out his books and call him horrible names. And his mother's solution to this was simple. Learn to stick up for yourself. He would ride his bike around the neighborhood constantly just by himself so he had something to do. He was even held back in school. His home life was no better. His father would tell him he's a nobody, he'll never be anything. He would smack him up the head and remind him how stupid he was. When the torment at school and home became too much, Eric would show fits of rage. His dad once told him to get his anger out, he would go out and hit the punching bag in the garage. So right then and there, Eric went out and he punched a tree until his knuckles were bloody. His angry outbursts were actually what got him kicked out of summer camp the morning Derek died, and that's how he was able to see him. Everyone, including Eric's family, were starting to think for sure that he knew more than what he was telling. He was staying at a friend's house when he asked about DNA testing and what the police would do if a kid was to do this crime. The boy's mom grew suspicious, and then she heard all about the smashed banana next to Derek's body. She went to the store and came back to make the children Sunday. She asked Eric if he wanted a banana on the side, and he admitted he hated bananas. A small but suspicious detail to the woman. Which is exactly what John and Marlene Haskell believed. But there was something there that was saying that, Eric, you know more than you're telling. They were friends of the Smith family, and Eric spent nearly every night at their home after the murder. Eric asked me what would happen if it turned out to be a kid. I said, I I seriously think they need some psychiatric help. And he, oh, okay, you know, and he walked away. And uh, the DNA testing, he wanted to know what that was and what that would show. As details about the crime began to leak out, a friend of Marlene's called with a new theory about the murder. She said, we think it's a kid and they don't like bananas because who had ever killed Derek had squashed the banana. 
an adult would have just discarded the banana. They wouldn't have squashed it and made it a mess. So Marlene Haskell launched her own investigation. So I went up to the store and I bought ice cream and nuts and syrup and bananas. And I brought it home and had everybody, you know, asked them if they wanted sundaes. Well, they all did. Well, Eric was going to have the nuts and syrup, but he didn't want bananas. Don't you like bananas, Eric? I said, I thought every kid liked bananas. No, I don't like bananas. I called Nancy and I said, Eric doesn't like bananas and I'm scared. It was only a few days later, seven days after Derek's death, there was a confession. The Roby family remembers getting the call that their son's killer had confessed. When they heard it was another kid, they were stunned. Eric Smith had confessed to his family and then eventually police. Eric was furious that he was kicked out of camp that morning, so mad that when he saw a helpless little Derek, he lured him into the woods to take his anger out on him. He told Derek he knew a shortcut to get to camp, and when he took him into the field, that's when he beat him repeatedly with a rock, later sodomizing him with a stick, smashing his banana, and pouring the Kool-Aid into his wounds. How could this child commit such a horrific crime? An investigator later described Eric as a serial killer in the making because it was found before killing Derek, he had suffocated a neighbor's cat. Which we all know the first sign to being a serial killer is, you know, harm towards animals. He was tried as an adult. His parents testified to the abuse he suffered in bullying at school. We actually have some audio from the court of his parents testifying. Keep in mind, all of this audio is from the 90s, so the quality isn't amazing. I just told him that he has to learn to stick up for himself. Did it work? No. And when Eric asked for help with anger, his father did not seem equipped to give it to him. He was really upset. He was crunching his fist and shaking. He said, Dad, I need help. He said, yes, I do. I want to hurt something like that. And I said, hold it. When I got angry, when I was your age, I grabbed the bag in our barn and I just started beating on it until I was too tired to do anything else. I heard our door shut and I turned around. He was gone. And as I got to the window, he was coming back in the door. And he was calm. And I looked down and I noticed his knuckles and his hands were kind of skinned up and bloody. And I asked him what happened, and he said I'd hit the tree a couple of times. Seemed to be okay. A psychiatrist testified Eric suffers from a mental disorder called intermittent explosive disorder, which is uncontrollable rage. He said during an episode that you would have uncontrollable rage, and it's not until you find a release that you appear quote-unquote normal again. However, this was disputed by another doctor who said it is a rare disorder, let alone to have it at such a young age. They found no abnormal brain or hormone levels, and to many, they were searching for one answer. Why? The trial concluded, and he was sentenced to nine years to life in prison for his crimes. Doreen Roby said the hardest question is when people ask how many children she has. To this, she says, I have one waiting for me in heaven, and I have one down here with me. Eric's been up for parole 10 times since 1993, when he was jailed at just 13 years old, and he was actually up for parole as recent as January 2020. All of them have been denied, and he's been in adult prison since 2001. Doreen says the thought of a killer being on the loose makes her terrified for her other son. She said, if anything, he's more of a danger now than he was before. He's bigger and stronger, and the largest question is, is rehabilitation possible? He was so young when he committed the crime, so is there still a chance for him? 
And that's one of those things that you hear about children committing crimes. And I just, I don't want to say people don't change because that's, that's not a fair answer to give because everyone is different. But when you commit such a horrible crime at the age of 13, I mean, those are kind of like your primitive years. You know, those are the years where you're learning what you're going to be like as an adult, you know, what you like, what you don't like. So it's, it's hard to say if, you know, once he gets out of prison, he won't do that again. The closest answer Eric ever gave to why he did this was to his parole board saying he took him to the field and put his hands around his neck and said that it felt good because instead of him being hurt, for once it was someone else. His attorney currently says that he has changed and she would feel comfortable if he lived next door to her. He is learning a foreign language and hopes to be a forensic pathologist and learn more behind the psychology of troubled teens. Derek's family still lives in that small town. They've considered moving but said the support in their family keep them there. They now live on what's called Roby Road, which I think that's incredible that the community did that for them. They made a, a road called Roby Road. I love that. Eric and Derek's family have never spoken a single word to each other, but they've come face-to-face a few times in their small town, and the Roby family described it as bringing back the rush of emotions and painful memories that will never go away. I just am kind of curious. Tori and I, before we do cases, sometimes we talk a lot about them, sometimes we don't. This is one of the cases that we haven't discussed in depth. And Tori, what do you think? Like, is it fair to say this man should be in prison for the rest of his life? Like I said, you know, he wasn't a seven-year-old kid. This was a 13-year-old child. You know, teenager, like I said, those are your primitive years. Would you feel safe if this man was living across the street to you and your child? I think the hardest part and I think the biggest debate is, yes, I think when you're younger and you go to prison and you get the help you need or you know, even a mental health facility, you are more likely to be rehabilitated. But there's a lot of things in different cases that I think, you know, that that require different circumstances. And I, I think that people will argue, you know, one side or the other, whether, you know, oh, he was abused. So it's understandable. And some people will say there's no excuse. And my answer is, I think that is it's not necessarily an excuse. I don't have an opinion either way on that. My thinking is more, yes, I think it was a contributing factor. Does that mean it's an excuse? Not necessarily. But I, uh, reading that he wants to be a forensic pathologist, to me, it shows me that he's still not over the idea of death and over brutal crimes. It shows me that he still wants to be involved in that, but he's He's showing it as more like a, oh, I want to I wanna be helpful. And honestly, I think if you're doing such horrific things, like smashing this boy's head and dumping Kool-Aid on him, if you're doing such horrible things at such a young age, do I think that you can accept your crimes? Yes. Does that mean that you're changed and you're safe? And even then, if he's re- rehabilitated, did he serve his punishment? And I think that's the thing I keep going back to. It's not that he just took Derek to the forest and, you know, choked him, which still is horrific. I'm not saying that that is an easy death. That would be terrifying, especially at four years old. He looked at this child. He understood in his head that he was bigger than this kid and he could do what he wanted to him. And then not only proceeded to choke him till he was dead, but sodomize him with a stick and pour Kool-Aid in his wounds. and. I guess that's the thing that holds me back is 
when he gets out, is he going to look at someone else? Is he going to look at another, you know, maybe he's what, I don't know how old now, but he, is he going to look at a 16 year old kid and think I'm bigger than you. I can do what I want. And he does like, that's the thing that holds me back is it was such a brutal crime that I, I just don't know how I feel. I'm not saying people don't change, but I mean, I don't think I would feel safe, particularly knowing he was my next door neighbor, like his attorney said. Oh, I agree 100%. And I think the hardest part for me, too, that I go back and forth is like, you know, being in prison locked up that long, he hasn't been around kids. So maybe he thinks and maybe you know, even experts say he would be okay. And then he gets out and he sees someone that's smaller than him that is vulnerable. And maybe he does the same thing. And if he really does have this intermittent explosive disorder, it's really nothing that you can ever change. Like, yes, he can, I'm sure there's counseling and I'm sure there's treatments, but how it's uncontrollable rage. So how are you going to control an uncontrollable rage? I guess that's my biggest concern. And I think it would take a lot of proving for me, at least, to think that he is he's able to walk freely and not be a danger. And he even wrote like this really eerie poem about his crimes. And he said that he feels so bad and he knows that Derek can't celebrate his 16th birthday and he can't have all these things. But then the rest of the poem was about how he's trapped in prison, which I mean, I get, you know, he spent most of his life in prison, but I feel like maybe he's just telling people what they want to hear. And it's like, you know, after prison, where is he going to go? I mean, we all know that unfortunately, once you're a violent offender, it's so hard to find a job. Is he going to go back to his abusive family who are going to push him and push him and push him like he said that they did when he was younger and he's going to re-offend? Like, you know, that's what I think about. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? And I don't know. I just, it's so hard because it's, I get he was young when he committed this crime, but at 13, I mean, I was already diagnosed with depression at the age of 13 and I knew what was right and wrong. And I get, it's not that intermittent explosive disorder. Like I get that those are two completely different diagnoses, but it's just like Tori said, you can't control an uncontrollable rage. You know, what are how are you going to prevent when you don't have prison guards around you 24-7 or people watching you 24-7, how are you going to change and be a good person, a functioning member of society? Yeah, and I think honestly, in my opinion of crimes like this where they're in prison and and I think especially in cases like this where they're in prison and I mean, there is a chance they're rehabilitated, but there's also a chance they're not. I feel like in cases where you took somebody's life, I think that it should be up to the victim's families. And I can tell you 100% the Roby family does not want him out on the streets. They don't feel comfortable. They have another son to worry about and to think about. And they're traumatized. And I know that there's a lot of victims' families who are like, yeah, I want him out. I want him to live his life. But the Robies are not like that. And honestly, if if they're not okay with it, I personally, I'm not okay with it. And I know that that's hard to say because some people have very strong opinions and others don't. But I think that your punishment should be supported by the victim's families and if they don't support you being let out early you shouldn't be let out early or ever honestly I just put myself in these parents shoes and you know he can feel sorry that is that is okay I'm glad that he can feel remorse for his you know what he did and I'm glad he understands that 
But like Tori said, is he just saying what he knows people want to hear? And no matter how sorry you are, you could say that you're so, 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 so sorry. That is never going to bring Derek back. That is never going to change what he did. And the fact that this family for the rest of their life will never be whole. They have to deal with the loss of a four-year-old who never got to celebrate his fifth birthday, who never got to go to kindergarten, who would never got to get his, you know, driver's license or graduate. How do you give that back? And I think that's something that, you know, people who lose a family member in such a horrific way have to deal with, or even anyway, you lose a family member and you think, how can you fix this missing piece? And I don't think there is a way. So that's why I wholly support you know, whatever the family feels, because I can't imagine losing a child that young and that horrible, but then to have the trauma, and they said it is traumatizing. Every time he's up for parole, they said it's like reopening those wounds, and that's why I fully support, you know, it's really up to them because I don't want them to be traumatized twice. You know, how, how do you live with the fact that this man took your child's life and gets to live his while you'll never have that back? Well, and his family still lives in town and their family still lives in town. So when he gets out, is he going to go home to his family in the same, the same town? I, I couldn't even imagine seeing his parents, let alone seeing him. I, I really don't even think that it would be in the best interest of the family or really anybody. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things. And obviously, I think that the parole board hasn't paroled him for a reason. Obviously, we don't know every nook and cranny of what's going on in those parole hearings, but people do get released, you know, after violent crimes. I mean, we've talked about Carla Homolka or multiple people that have been released, and obviously there is a reason he hasn't. So I'm just going to go ahead and let that speak for itself. All right, guys. And with that, we're going to conclude this episode. Let us know your thoughts. Do you think that he should be released? Do you think that it's possible he could be rehabilitated? Let us know.